Hi there. I'm Eric Wordweaver Shervin, Gothi of the Ridgar Folk here in East Texas, and I'd like to welcome you to The Raven's Call. This is a show where I ramble on about different heathen-related subjects, just whatever strikes my fancy, sets my mind on fire at the time. A uh, big UPG warning at the beginning of this episode, like always. This is just my views. These are the views of one heathen here in East Texas, one Gothi for his tribe that sees the world one way, and uh, it, I am not the... I'm not the Asa Pope. I am not an expert in anything. I'm simply one guy who sees the world a certain way and likes to talk about it. So uh, please just take these videos as what they're meant to be, which is a conversation starter taken with a grain of salt. Uh, they're meant to get you thinking outside the box, having conversations with each other about subject matters and developing your own views on the world. Because I'm very much into grassroots tribal heathenry and that's where I think the focus should be. So, all my contact information is down below. Uh, I do intend to show that awesome dice bag that uh, I was gifted from one of my viewers, and I will, I absolutely will, but I left it at the house because we had game this weekend and I was showing it off to all my players who were jealously uh, coveting this awesome dice bag. And so I will, uh, <laughs> I will try and remember to bring it up here for one of my subsequent episodes so I can actually show it on the channel. Uh, yeah, I got ready to film and I went, Dad, gum it, left it at home. So it, it's a thing. Uh, also, if you are interested in knowing anything about my Dungeons & Dragons campaign that I've got going on, check out the uh, cutting room floor stuff. I talk about my campaign a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a thing. I share as much as I can given that uh, some of my players actually watch my show and so because they're tribe members <laughs> so i don't want to give any spoilers because they uh you know they've still got to play through this stuff so it's exciting it's fun but i go on for like 15 10 or 15 minutes on just nerdy stuff so if you're interested go check that out without any further ado we're going to go ahead and jump into today's subject Today's subject is another viewer request. This is one that I will allow to remain anonymous due to the nature of the request. But I hope they're watching and I hope that they get that this is indirect response to their question as it was written in. This particular viewer uh, wrote in saying that for a long time they had used um, mind-altering substances in order to facilitate the transition to sacred space and sacred time to help commune with the gods and goddesses and they kind of wanted my take on the use of hallucinogenics and things like that with regards to contacting sacred space and sacred time but more specifically these individuals have progressed to a different phase of life um, some transitions have occurred and now they're in a position where they cannot freely engage with those chemicals uh, due to job restrictions and things like that so suddenly they find themselves less connected to the gods and goddesses because their avenue that they were so accustomed to, so used to, isn't there anymore. And they're not able to use that particular tool to reach the altered state of mind. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about um, the use of these tools and some alternatives that people that cannot use those tools might use to reach sacred space, sacred time uh, more effectively. So. Uh, first off, you know, I, I dance around a little bit just because it's, you know, YouTube censorship and all of that, but certain mind-altering substances are relatively harmless, 
and can be used to reach altered states of mind and consciousness for religious and ritualistic purposes. This has been proven throughout generations. Uh, any kind of anthropological studies will show you that ancient cultures used uh, mushrooms, peyote, all kinds of things to help commune with the other side, as it were. Some it's more spiritual work, they're contacting the spirit world. Uh, some it's for religious purposes and contacting the sacred, sacred space and you know, sacred, uh, sacred time, that mythic space. And uh, pardon the allergies, we, <clears throat> we have a front blow through and we've got all kinds of new allergens blow in with it. So for any time that happens for about three days, I'm sneezing and sniffling, it's a thing. So, um, but yeah, these ancient cultures would use these to reach these altered states of consciousness and facilitate vision walks, contacts with the divine, contacts with ancestors, uh, contacts in the spirit world in general. And it's highly effective, it really is. Uh, it is a, the use of chemicals as a tool to alter the state of mind of the individual is a shortcut. Um, it is an efficient way to shift the mind into an altered state of consciousness, which can facilitate contact. It doesn't necessarily guarantee it. One of the things that you have to be careful about is that utilizing chemicals to alter the state of mind, and to, especially if they have hallucinogenic purposes, uh, side effects, can give false positives on your interactions. So scrutiny is recommended Plus, all of the appropriate safety measures need to be taken. Hydration, uh, safe space, uh, make sure that it's something that is preferably legal in your area. I, have to, I feel like I'm compelled to say that. And uh, in general, you need to really pick apart what happens in those experiences and objectively explore them as best you can so that you feel confident in what you have experienced. A lot of times I find people will say that they've had these wondrous experiences with the gods and from what they've described to me, some of them are very genuine. Some of them are, uh, it was very evident to me that they had a thematic trip and uh, their hallucinations were not necessarily connections to the prophetic, nor were they, connections to the divine, nor were they prophetic. Uh, they simply were a trip. And sometimes too much credence is placed in that. But the truth is you can have a false positive on those kind of experiences in any situation. And it becomes difficult to trust oneself, especially in society where we are trained to disregard the fantastic and out there, uh, to minimize it and to overly simplify it into scientifically explained phenomena as opposed to embracing the UPG of the experience and acknowledging that you know altered states of consciousness will give us access to things that are unseen by modern sciences at least so far and so I, I urge caution when utilizing things like this um, I, I urge scrutiny, I urge objectivity as best as possible. And you really need to know yourself with regards to this or the situations can go very, very south for you very, very quickly. Um, bad trips are definitely a thing. 
And if you have a bad trip and you associate this with a contact with the divine when it was really just a bad trip, I could put a bad taste in the mouth for something that really wasn't what you thought it was going in. And so it's, it's dodgy and it's dangerous, but I know people who do utilize these to great effect for real and honest experiences. So make of that what you will. Um, I cannot prescribe the use of any particular uh, mind-altering chemical uh, for obvious liability reasons. I'm going to tell you to uh, utilize other methodologies that are more socially acceptable, as you can understand from a public social media platform. Uh, I would need to do that. And so keep that in mind. And uh, with regards to some of those more, because this gets to the meat and potatoes of the actual question at hand, which is, if you don't have access to those things anymore, how do you reach that state of mind? How do you reach that connection with the gods and goddesses on a level that is meaningful and powerful when you're so used to utilizing the other tool? And I'm going to say, first off, part of the reason that individuals who have utilized the tools to reach that altered state of consciousness, part of the reason they have issues afterwards is because is because the chemicals serve as a crutch in the process. Uh, they're a shortcut, a quick step. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where, yes, it very much can be utilized for that, especially if the individual knows what they're doing and goes through the proper preparations and everything. Um, <clears throat> but it it's easy because you just take it and then you guide and, you know, it's, it's all right, it's inaccurate to say that it's easy, but it is easier, let me put it that way, it's easier, because you overcome the step necessary of reaching that altered state of consciousness in addition to all of the ritual preparation that goes along. Uh, you kind of kickstart that process using the chemical and it, it, it makes it difficult. It's like somebody who, uh, somebody who has to walk the stairs after taking the escalator for so long, or the elevator, suddenly it's like, well, this is a lot more difficult. It's like, well, it wouldn't be if you used the stairs all the time. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily feel that way. You're used to the easier path. It doesn't mean that either one is more efficient. It simply means that the easier path requires less effort. And therefore, you're used to that. And acclimating to a more effortful modality is an adjustment. And that's, that's fine. It's understandable. It's one of those things you just do. Um, it does take longer to do it with uh, the more uh, <clears throat> mundane methodologies, but a few of the methodologies that I am familiar with as far as reaching altered states of consciousness are things such as meditation. Guided meditation where you can take your time, calm the mind, and find a center and allow yourself to expand your consciousness can be one of the most effective ways of reaching that altered state of consciousness. But this isn't for everyone because some people have issues with the stillness of the process, the transition, and that's not really their, their way of doing it. That's not really their tool, their, their road to the sacred and the divine. It's kind of like different people have different love languages. This is like somebody's uh, ritual language, as it were. 
Um, so yes, there is the stillness of meditation, but there are other ways to go about it. If the stillness of meditation isn't something that works for you, isn't something that you can you know, effectively calm your mind enough for to be able to attain that altered state of consciousness through, then you may look to the exact opposite end of the spectrum and go through physical movement. I know some individuals that will utilize physical exertion to reach that altered state of consciousness. Uh, the runner's high is a thing where you <coughs> exert yourself to such an extent that you release endorphins. And these endorphins will shift you into an altered state of consciousness, uh, especially in marathon runners and endurance athletes. They really experience these things. but. This is something that we have seen utilized throughout the generations. It may not necessarily be codified as such, but physical movement and exertion is something that we've seen through the use of ecstatic dance, through uh, combat, combat training, combat like doing katas and, and practice, but the actual physical act of going through the motion and the exertion you are generating energies as you move that you can use to alter that state of consciousness. And once you reach that point, <coughs> you can then connect on that level. So there's physical exertion. Dance is one of the most common things. You find that in multiple cultures across the world where ritual dance is very much included. Native Americans did it. Um, I've seen evidence of South American cultures doing it. Northern European cultures did it. Uh, if you, I've recommended her before, but if you'll look into the works of Kari Torin, that's K-A-R-I-T-A-U-R-I-N-G. Uh, she has done some wonderful research into the use of music and rhythm in ritual and culture for Northern Europe in general. And um, she does a lot of stav work, and it's really very good stuff. It really is very good stuff. But there's evidence of things like uh, the Bjorn dance, the bear dance, uh, in honoring the spirit of the bear, wherein one personifies the bear in the dance and uses that to connect with this Vatir spirit. This is an excellent example of utilizing physical movement as a modality for reaching the altered state of consciousness to facilitate contact with a spiritual entity. The same can be done for the gods and goddesses. Uh, so ecstatic dance or just dance in general can be very effective in reaching this, this goal, as can going through the motions of feigned combat, actual combat, um, or just sheer physical exertion to the point of reaching that altered state of consciousness. That may be part of your pre-ritual prep. If you know you are a person who needs that physicality, then find a way to ritually engage in physical exertion. Now, it may not be something as simple as going out and doing reps before a ritual, uh, but it may be something like, okay, you know that you need the physical exertion to get to that point, so you may want to include uh, games beforehand that help you reach that, uh, that help you generate that physical uh, somatic energy that will help you to reach that state of consciousness. You may want to be doing Viking games or you know races or you know if you've got more Scottish ancestry doing caber toss and things like that or if you're just more interested in those kind of things you do caber toss hammer throw spear throwing archery any of those things can help you reach that state of mind now with some of those things that are less physically exerting such as like archery archery going through the just the repetitive physical motion 
is a form of meditation. It's meditation in motion as opposed to meditation in stillness. You can reach that consciousness by the intense focus that is required for the repetitive action. And it definitely can get you there. Uh, absolutely can. It's what we refer to as the zone when doing anything like that. It's that point where you stop thinking and just do it. And that's, reach, that's reaching an altered state of mind which increases the efficacy of the, the intended motion, the intended purpose. And when you can stop complicating with the excess noise and you reach that state of mind where you're just in it and you're in that zone. This is the same kind of thing that we're trying to translate to the dealing with the gods and goddesses. So, let's look at another modality that is effective in reaching that altered state of consciousness and in accessing the gods and goddesses or in accessing spiritual anything. And that is going to be sound or vibration. The use of sound and vibration is, again, an ancient technique that's been used across multiple cultures. You can look at Tibetan singing bowls, any number of cultures and drumming. Northern Europeans with the stav work, which is rhythmic chanting and uh, thrumming of the staff, uh, usually with a tame to add syncopated beats to it, that allows for the mind to sync up with these vibrations. And when you associate certain vibrations with that altered state of mind, the vibrations can help trigger it. A lot of these things that we're utilizing effectively establish heuristics or shortcuts for the brain to reach an altered state of consciousness. There's associations that you make with these sensations that clue the brain into that this is ritual and there is an intended purpose. And so when you initiate these things, especially if you do it in a routine ritual fashion, repetition will build those neural pathways so they activate faster and you can reach that altered state of consciousness with less effort and more efficacy. So, and yeah, so it gets to a point where if you are, if you've done it enough and you've practiced and you've trained your body and mind to associate certain vibrations with ritual, that you can reach that altered state of consciousness through drumming. That was one of my main things, is drumming. I was a drummer for a belly, dan belly dance group in Renfair. And uh, was all, I've always been into percussion ever since I was little. And uh, I get in a very altered state of consciousness when I drum. I will zone out and go to another place where it's just me and the music. And that's that same thing, that's that altered state of consciousness. You can utilize that to shift the mind into that altered state of consciousness and then utilize that, that sensation, that, that mental state to then access sacred time, sacred space for ritualistic purposes or spiritual space, spiritual uh, reality, as it were. <laughs> and so drumming, singing, chanting, uh, a lot of heathens will use goldr, which is the runic chanting. Um, the idea here is the same thing as pretty much any form of chanting, and that is that the vibration generated from the vocal cords helps to facilitate that shift into altered state of consciousness. I have utilized this myself to great effect. Um, matter of fact, right now, uh, because drumming isn't necessarily something that I can easily work into a lot of my rituals, especially if it's something that I don't have a lot of time to prepare for ahead of time, 
um, get all my drums out and stuff and have some time to, to do that and get in that state and then transition down there. Uh, a lot of times before ritual, I will do some chanting that helps to kind of click me over into that. But I've done it enough that it's kind of second nature and it does not take very much to get me to that point. When it was early on for me, I spent a lot of time practicing it because I needed to ingrain that muscle memory. Only it's not muscle memory, it's neural memory, but it's the same process. Repetition breeds ease uh, in this kind of situation. It facilitates the process on a level that you can't without the practice and the repetition and the confidence in it. Uh, confidence is a big thing. The, big, the repetition, yeah, it ingrains everything. It really burns in those neural pathways. But the, the big thing is you're just confident in it. You're more confident. You know that this is going to work because you've experienced it before, because you've taken the time to explore it and make it work for you in the past. So keep that in mind as you go forward. Try things like chanting, singing, drumming, dancing, uh, meditation, all of these things highly effective ways. There are other ways that you can do it too, but they are more typically flavors of these modalities. Um, some people will do ritual baths uh, beforehand to help reach that altered state of consciousness. This again is more of a meditation thing, but it is kind of crossing the modalities because essentially what you're looking at is what sensations are occurring, what what neural pathways are you activating in order to reach the altered state of consciousness? Yes, this is the psychology brain and me speaking again. But, uh, you know, with the physicality, you're using deep somatic sensations. You're using proprioceptive, you're using vestibular sensations to help reach that altered state of consciousness. You are introducing sensations and stimuli that you associate with that altered state and your brain processes this somatic information in such a way as to help facilitate that. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, uh, the singing and the, uh, the drumming and the vibration, again, that's a deep somatic sensation. It's not just the sound, it's actually the vibration that does the trick. So there are other things that you can do to facilitate this process as well. Other musical instruments, it could be playing guitar, it could be playing flute, it could be playing violin. All of these things can transport because the vibration can have an altering effect on the brain with regards to the state of consciousness. Absolutely. That's why a lot of people will work music into their rituals because it is helpful in reaching that altered state of consciousness. I do find that authentically played, like real world played, uh, music versus, say, a digital recording is more effective uh, because the vibrations are generated from a physical media, um, and technically speaking, a speaker vibrates and therefore creates vibrations from a physical media. Um, it's just, it's different when it's actually coming from the woodwind, when it's actually coming from the string, when it's actually coming from the vibrating drum head. There is a deep just very real connection to that vibration, especially if you're able to generate it yourself. And when it comes to chanting and singing, it's, yeah, somebody can sing and you can clue into the vibrations and everything that they're generating, but I will tell you it's more effective if you are the one doing the chanting and the singing, which is why frequently chants will be joined in by everyone, uh, because the idea is that the vibration you are generating and its intonations with the other individuals chanting at the same time build that resonance and that just further quickens the process and eases that transition. So 
there are a number of modalities that can be used. The chemical aspect, the chemical variety, is a direct stimulation of the neural pathways through chemicals introduced into the system. That's why it is effective. You're reaching that altered state of consciousness by manipulating the brain chemistry and achieving that. Um, whether or not it's an authentic experience varies depending upon the individual and the circumstances. Uh, there's, there's a number of variables that go into it. Um, I personally find that uh, using some of these more traditional methods, uh, not to say that chemical isn't traditional because obviously it is, but some of these alternative methods to be more authentic in some cases, uh, in a lot of cases, simply because of the personal connection and purposeful engagement that is necessary to do it. Does it take longer? Yes. Um, is it always a guarantee you'll reach that state? No, there's a number of variables that can block. Uh, you know, noise in the brain, things on your mind, stressors, things like that can definitely impact the ability to contact that altered state of mind. Individuals that are suffering with depression frequently have an issue contacting and connecting to that altered state of consciousness because the brain isn't functioning the way they normally would function. So they take it, it takes finding a different methodology to access it. Um, a lot of times people will become frustrated with this and turn to the chemical aspects because they just can't figure out how to do it on their own, so they'll use the crutch of the chemical. And it's not always effective depending on what particular brain chemistry issues are going on for them at the time. Uh, it can be very, very frustrating. So if you're dealing with mental health issues in conjunction with trying to maintain your religious or spiritual practices, then it's recommended that if your modality suddenly just stops working for you, that you may need to look at addressing the mental health issues in order to help facilitate that connection again. A lot of times self-doubt will prevent a person from effectively reaching that altered state of consciousness because it removes that confidence, um, that self-assuredness that is necessary to release and step into that. Uh, but also just the straight-up chemical imbalances can frequently impede that process. So, you know, one, get help. Um, absolutely. There's no shame in it all. Uh, number two, explore different modalities. Uh, it may be that when you are in that altered state of consciousness of depression or whatever, uh, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress, whatever it may be that's impeding your process, uh, you may need a different key to unlock that particular lock. You may need to shift from vocal intonations to using some kind of somatic sensation. Uh, you may need to shift to stillness. Um, there's also imagery-based stuff, but that again really kind of focuses into the meditation side of things, which is, it, it all boils down to focus, essentially. Um, honing in that focus to the point that you can shut out outside variables, outside uh, stimuli, and really hone in. That way you can focus on the sensations of the ritual energies at play. So, there's a, like I said, there's a number of modalities that you can use. It just depends. And it's, uh, it's different for the individual. And no two people are going to be exactly the same in their approach. So you may need to look at a multimodal process for your tribe if you are in charge of building ritual. You may need to look at including some other elements that are that, that include the other members so they can also reach that altered state 
in order to help facilitate their sense of wholeness from the ritual. Some people can become uh, distanced or feel like they're not getting the fullness of the ritual or not feel connected to the ritual because they haven't reached that state and therefore felt the connection of the ritual itself. So, you know, you've got you've to figure it out. So you may need to mix in uh, somatic and vocal intonation. You may need to work in uh, stillness and focus practice with you know other vibrational techniques you know you may there's a number of things that you can do but you may need to explore including multiple things in order to help reach that state of consciousness if you've got someone who is more somatic uh, and you've got other members that are more tied to the vibrational aspect you can have them play music for the somatic individual to dance or do uh, you know martial arts katas or uh, whatever they may need to do physical play acting any kind of thing that helps them generate the energy and altered state of consciousness that they need. And then they're working together to create something that, one, honors the gods and honors their tribe in its creation, and two, helps to facilitate the connection. So, you know, be thinking about that. Is your tribe something that can work with a single modality effectively? Is your tribe something that needs a multimodal approach? Uh, are you focusing on your own hearth? If you're focusing on your own hearth, doing hearth cult work, then it's really simple. You just focus on the strengths under your own roof and uh, really pull from that. Especially if you are in a position where you're just working with yourself, then yeah, you're going to be able to really hone in on your modality and what works for you. Every person that you add adds a different level of complexity to the ritual and the accessing of that space. And uh, you, you, may, you may require a multimodal approach. So. Uh, there's there's tons of stuff that you can look into on this, uh, and it's effective to look at cross-cultural evidence as well, uh, so that you can see what the root processes actually are. Because the root process of reaching altered state of consciousness is universal. It's kind of like magic. Magic is magic, and the different trappings that we slap onto it are culturally based. But the core element of energy manipulation and what we do uh, with those practices is a universal thing. So when you're dealing with you know this kind of ritual mentality, this this altered state of consciousness that's frequently necessary in order to forge a good connection, um, yeah, it, it's going to vary. It's going to vary, and uh, it's something you really need to take the time to hone in. But it's something that's going to be the core elements of them are going to be universal. Uh, which is that reaching the altered state of consciousness and the core elements of the modalities are going to translate. You know, Tibetan, Tibetan chants are on the same level as uh, ritual singing, on the same level as Golder, on the same level as Mongolian throat singing. Uh, it's all into the vibration and uh, the, reaching the altered state of consciousness through said vibrations and, and really working with that modality to help reach that altered state. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and cut it there. If you guys have any further questions, feel free to write in. Let me know. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this. Hopefully the viewer that requested this has found some use in the content of this video. Um, yeah, it can be very, very rewarding if you take the time to figure out your own modality, your own approach, and embrace that. Work it into your rituals so that you are better prepared every time you do a ritual to be in that state of mind. You really need to reach that state of mind either in ritual or before ritual 
And once you get your modality down uh, and you repeat it and you really build that connection that way, you can reach that altered state with less effort and with uh, more efficacy over time. So anyway, that'll do us for today. Thank you all for watching. I greatly appreciate your support. I hope you continue to write in and submit questions because they make for great videos. Hail to you all. Thank you. And may your hearth fires burn bright. All right, let's see if we can do this. <clears throat> Something blew in in that last front, so I'm like sneezing my head off today. I don't know if you guys ever experienced that when you know front blows through and it brings in allergens from a different area until they settle down. My sinuses go nuts, drives me crazy. Anyway, while I try to tame my crazy ass hair because it's raining, but it's also sunshiny, and so. It's like humid as all hell, so it's kind of ridiculous. But that's East Texas for you. Uh, so hair is frizzing up. It's muggy. I'm sweaty, but hey, it's a thing. So yeah, uh, let's see. For the post credits, things have been rocking along, rocking along, rocking along. Getting better at the night job, so I'm less tired during the day. That's a good thing. So props to that. A step at a time. I'm getting better with it and I'm improving my times, which means my schedule's getting better. Uh, so, still not getting a whole lot of sleep, but that's okay. It's alright. Uh, had our D&D session this past weekend, and man, was that fun. My players finished my dungeon. Uh, this completes kind of the prologue for my, uh, my campaign. Got a couple of newbies in the group, so I started everybody at level 2. And then throughout the prologue, I've been power leveling them. Um, every couple of sessions, I will, I'll up them a level or two, uh, just because, you know, I really wanted them to start the real adventure at about level five. But my newbies, in order to uh, teach them the ropes, as it were, uh, needed to, you know, have some of the more simplified low-level stuff before they kicked off to the high-level stuff. Plus, it gives my more experienced players a chance to kind of feel out the nature of their character. <clears throat> before they uh, lock into their their meta stuff, um, which really heavily kicks in around five, especially for those that like multi-class, um, which I've got a couple of my more seasoned players, namely my brothers, that uh, wanted to multi-class and build some kind of meta builds, which was cool. Uh, I really like what they've got built, and I'm excited to see how it plays out. But <clears throat> I've built this entire world called Rodothia, and the essence of it is... Uh, the, the story is that they've all been given by their particular patrons, gods, um, whatever is tied to them and their character, a mission to find these ancient ancient artifacts. And uh, they don't know anything about them. They, they know little other than the fact that I've, I've called them the Twelve. And so they've been put on a mission to go find these things. And uh, they've, they've joined what I call uh, the Warden's Guild, which is essentially kind of a bounty hunter's guild, but for monsters. Uh, it's very... Have you ever watched Goblin Slayer? It's kind of like that. Um, plus Witcher, uh, that kind of motif. So they've joined this guild, and they've gone out, and they've been given a mission to f seek out this one particular bounty, which has led them down the avenue of chasing down one of the pieces of the Twelve. This is where the real adventure starts. 
so the the dungeon that I dropped them in was an ancient uh, ancient temple to a church for this uh, or a cult to this crimson queen and she uh, they don't they don't know much about her yet but they're about to get a big exposition dump in the next episode yeah, the next uh, <coughs> next session and so they're gonna find out a lot more about her and once they do I can tell you a little bit more about her if you're interested but uh, they discovered that this Crimson Queen was at one point in time at war with this character called the Dusk Lord and he appears as this big angelic looking celestial dude with black wings and she's demonic in nature well devilish in nature <coughs> lots of infernal writing in the in the cult and uh, kind of a focus on dragons anyway the gist is they've discovered that there was this war between these parties and the twelve seem to play a significant role they're these these twisted dark artifacts that emanate this otherworldly darkness and blackness and the further they got into the dungeon and the closer they got to the piece of twelve the more twisted things got um, very Lovecraftian very very Cthulhu-ish and uh, there's reasons for that with the as far as the campaign goes I can't divulge because a couple of them actually watch the show and um, but yeah they got to experience some really cool stuff Van Richten's guide to Ravenloft just came out and it kind of inspired me to, to ramp up some of the more uh, co the cosmic horror horrific elements to this particular uh, aspect of the story. Now, the whole thing's not going to be that way. If I could give any kind of DM tips to people out there, it would be to mix your genres. Um, play, play some that are like truly high fantasy, and then every once in a while dip into some horror stuff. Um, do a heist every once in a while. Uh, maybe some rescue missions. You know, play, if you're going to do an ongoing campaign, you're going to want to bring in some different genre elements in order to kind of keep things interesting. It helps to build missions around particular genre-esque styles. You know, if you want to have a, a dark horror theme, uh, find a reason to send them to the Shadowfell or throw them against a good vampire or some kind of aberration or something. And then really ramp up the imagery and the storytelling on it. And uh, it's really cool. <clears throat> the boss character, you know, I told you guys about the uh, Twisted Displacer Beast that I created, which was a, it was originally a Displacer Beast, but because of the presence of the Twelve, it was twisted into this, this aberrant thing, and uh, sprouted extra tentacles, extra eyes, things like that. I amped up its powers, uh, it kind of did this warp reality thing where it could warp step, and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I had to nerf that one a little bit in combat, though, because I hadn't got to playtest it yet. And if I hadn't, it would have been a TPK on my party. So I went back and I designed the big boss for the dungeon. And this one, uh, when I first inf infiltrated the dungeon, there was this group of kobolds that was raiding the dungeon looking for magical artifacts. And they were following a half-dragon veteran who was trying to suss out uh, different magical items so that he could ostensibly free Tiamat. That's part of what he got the, uh, the kobolds to follow him under the, the, the guise of. And, um, of course, they probably would have followed him anyway because he's draconic. But, in all reality, he's, he doesn't even really believe in Tiamat. He's just greedy and selfish and was looking for stuff for himself. But while he's down there, he trips this uh, sigil that was activated by the party when they spilled kobold blood on a... Uh, <laughs> on a statue in the uh, further up in the dungeon but 
After they beat the Displacer Beast, the group took a long rest in the dungeon, so that allowed me to progress things about eight hours in the dungeon. And uh, that made a significant difference, because when they got down there, the Half-Dragon Veteran had tripped stuff that they were going to trip, and uh, so the Half-Dragon Veteran uh, is face-to-face -face with this Erinyes, who works for this Crimson Queen. And uh, she's, she's fascinated by these heroes that have arrived, and she has her reasons to be. Uh, it's very, you know, we'll, we'll reveal it in time. But she's revealed that she works for the Crimson Queen, and uh, she wanted to see what they were made of. So she twisted the half-dragon veteran and injected him with some darkness from her mistress's magic. And uh, he turned into a <laughs> half-void dragon veteran. Uh, so he goes from being this kind of half-dragon, red-dragon mob to being this big void dragon-looking half-dragon. And uh, <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. Uh, although, I, it, this is a thing you got to do when you're DMing. you got to run through and figure out the balance on your players and what they can do. And when you've got a large party like I do, because I've got seven players in the, uh, the main campaign, which means they can d dish out a lot of damage every turn, but they can't necessarily take a lot of damage because they're still low level. So, yeah, I could amp up the damage that the creature does, but then I risk killing party members. So instead, I augment the life bars to make them last longer. But even then, the more rounds they're in combat, if they're focused on a singular character, then party dynamics play in pretty heavy so that it doesn't just straight out kill a character. Because, uh, you know, if he's got a couple of more turns to be able to hit the rogue or the barbarian, it could do some serious damage. Especially low levels when they haven't built up any kind of resistances or gotten any decent magical weapons yet. But they handily trounced him because I didn't extend his life bar enough. And uh, thought about tweaking it in the moment, but I was like, no, I'm going to give him this one. And plus, we were running long. We really wanted to get to the exposition part. So they, uh, which we didn't in the end. <laughs> it was so late by the time we were done that uh, after they defeated the half dragon uh, veteran, the, the void dragon veteran, uh, the Aaron, yes, warped them back to their home base. Ironically enough, wonder why that happened. And uh, they appear in front of their guild leader, and he's looking at them like, okay, we need to talk. Because uh, he knows what they were just sent on. And then uh, they, are, they were originally sent by the guild at the behest of the guild's uh, patron, which uh, they, they've met this ruby dragonborn yes i use gem dragons uh which i was developing all of this and then the ua like right after i start developing all this the ua busts out which is unearthed arcana uh which is playtest material that hasn't been released for the game yet i'm designing all this stuff and then all of a sudden the ua releases gem dragonborns i'm like you gotta be kidding me i went through all that work and then here you're gonna throw this out but then they didn't include ruby dragons in it so i can't crib their work i gotta keep going on mine it's complicated. Anyway, <laughs> it makes me laugh. But they meet this uh, ruby dragonborn paladin who serves this ruby dragon god who is the one that actually sent them on the mission. So uh, they've come back and <clears throat> they're in front of their guild leader in this ruby dragonborn and we're going to see where things go. I've got scads of stuff written for this world. I built built the map and the world map and the cultures and everything from the grounds up and it's just exciting. I love it. I'm, I'm such a nerd. Uh, 
yeah, I, I love D&D. It's amazing. So uh, if you guys are interested in doing any kind of creative writing or uh, improv type work and you want to expand skills that you wouldn't normally think you need, such as public speaking, uh, confidence speaking in front of other people, confidence creating on the fly, uh, just creativity in general, play D&D. Uh, it is definitely worth it and will help you build those skills. Trust me, it's fantastic. Without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into the episode. If you guys are interested in continuing to get D&D updates, or if you're interested in more about my world and what I've got going on in Renothia, uh, hit me up, let me know. Uh, I'll continue to include things in the post-credits if you are interested. If not, uh, I'll skip it and go to something else, because I just wasted like 10 minutes talking about Dungeons & Dragons, and it's just because I'm an absolute nerd and I love doing this stuff. So. I may even include some of my character voices in the future, if you're so interested, because uh, I do. Uh, from theater, I did a lot of accent work, so I do a lot of uh, a lot of accents, lots of voices for my characters, and my players seem to like it. They were really, really, uh, really into it. One thing I can say though that was a misstep on my part, I think, is that uh, when when they touched the piece of the twelve, it caused them to have visions of kind of altered realities because it's you know reality warping in nature, and so. I had them flash to other, you know, genres, and uh, just for a brief second, vignette kind of thing, where one one player woke up and was in the uh, the hold of a starship, and had no context, no idea what was going on. It was just weird, strange, what the hell kind of thing. Another one I dropped into the Wild West. One I was uh, I dropped into uh, the Prohibition era. Uh, one I dropped into like World War One, and so it was just you know, just kind of a weird what in the world uh, meant to be crossing planes and barriers but I did discover for a group that's gathered to play a high fantasy game and that's their their genre of interest some of the players who are more seasoned are going to be cool with the hard genre break because it's something different it's something neat and they enjoy that but for my newbie players and some of my other players who are more genre genre focused um, the hard break can be a little bit much uh, some of the feedback I got was like it would be better if I had stayed kind of in genre but still did the twisted reality like showed characters in uh, juxtaposed scenarios as opposed to dropping them in something completely alien to the genre of the game and I thought that was interesting you really got to learn your players and feel them out on what kind of uh, what kind of genre elements they're expecting and what they feel comfortable with because if you break too hard on it, you can actually lose their interest in the game uh, because it just doesn't sit well with them and, and you'll end up losing them in the long run. And it's kind of hard when you are the creator to be able to look at that and go, okay, um, yeah, I, I get it. I understand what I did and I'll fix it going forward. Sometimes you want to take it a little too personal because this is your baby and you've created it and it's your story and you don't want to share, you don't want to bend it, uh, but you have to. It's a collaborative effort. and so. Uh, live and learn. Live and learn. I learned some stuff about my players, and I learned some stuff about my storytelling. Uh, some of it good. Some of it I needed to rethink a little bit. And uh, I think it's going to make for a much stronger campaign going forward, and I'm excited about it. But now I've talked for 15 minutes on D&D, because I am an absolute nerd, and we're going to move on to today's subject, which is going to make for a long episode. So we're live in 3, 2, 1. Let's jam. Let's jam. 